This is Meaning What. I'm Matt Wiseman. Today's episode's called Get Out Alive. Because we got to find a way out of these things. And if we're dead, there's not, it's not a way out. It's not acceptable. We have to find a way to refute sadness. We have to find a way to refute anger. And it's, I'm not saying you, you don't have to just disqualify these emotions. You can have them. It's fine. It's totally normal. But there's reason to have hope. And I still have hope. And I still have hope for the U.S. and for the future. And a lot of that hope comes from people like myself, millennials, some of the older generation Xers and, and the Zoomers comes from the awareness that we've built it comes from a kind of idea that is forming but it doesn't seem to have really coalesced yet it doesn't seem to have taken a a form yet and I do think it is something greater than just a political movement it's greater than just uh, an idea of what kind of economic system we have it's something about spirituality and humanity and and how we're supposed to live, and how we have gotten away from that, and we need a corrective course. And that particular change seems more and more desperate every day, is more and more needed every day. Um, And I wanted to get into how we could bring that into being. So that's how we get out of life. So I have um, three sections for you. The, uh, the state of play in the nation, the state of the nation, the, the status quo ideas that kind of perpetuate their own power, uh, and lastly, a, a way to um, advance, advance towards peace and freedom and democracy, and maybe the spiritual understanding of ourselves in the world with each other. All right. State of the Nation, Part 1. We're in crisis, everybody. I don't know if you ever knew this. Uh, Obviously, the pandemic is the big elephant in the room. Um, We have uh, this election in Ohio that is, again, the the establishment mainstream versus uh, a more progressive, more um, economically worker-centered, peaceful, love-oriented uh, wing of the party that just doesn't seem to gel with the Democratic Party, but maybe it can. Maybe it can. So um, the state of the nation is crisis. We have a massive inequality. Uh, it's actually worse than the Gilded Age, and there's a subsequent reasons for this. Uh, the war on the poor, the student debt, the college costs, the tax structure that um, disfavors the workers, but it favors those who hold capital or, or um, property. Uh, disinvestment in any kind of social programs or welfare to kind of correct these things over the years, and wage stagnation. Uh, and also the fact that we have these millennials that are just doing worse and worse, and this they're going to be the first generation since the foundation of the U.S. Like, get that your mind around that. Since the foundation of the U.S. to do worse than their parents did. That really tells you something about the direction of the nation. We are a nation in decline. 
and maybe you, you thought differently of that, but there's a lot of statistics out there that just suggest the, the U.S. has failed. And they, we were on the brink of this multiple times before, and people have uh, said that in the 70s that the U.S. was in decline, and they found a way to kind of change uh, domestic capitalism to global capitalism. They said that in the 30s, and they were saved by these massive social programs that were uh, rolled out by FDR and, um, you know, and rebuilt the country and eventually allowed the U.S. to rebuild most of the first world. So the inequality is the big elephant in the room, the inequality. Then we have unionization. There seems to be a lack of worker solidarity, solidarity, and it's actually against the law um, to have a, a, a strike in solidarity. You know, if the power of you being a laborer, power is, is the services and the goods you produce, you can't strike, you can't go on strike unless, you know, of course your union okays it, but also uh, unless it is for your own personal benefit, right? You know, your union would strike for benefits for you and would other people in that union. Since unionization rates are less than 3% in the nation, it's really shameful that there's laws against unionization where there is, and those can be changed. Um, and there has been programs for that. There's been years of assault on any kind of uh, worker unionization and solidarity, and that has been an intentional product of government. You know, and it could be forces and other influence in government, but it doesn't matter. What happened was a governmental assault, or what happens was a legal assault through the courts. Regardless, the institutions have been anti-worker, and we have seen the policies that are anti-worker uh, really prosper and 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 push forward. And, and get rid of any kind of power that people had in the society in the U.S. And that has been a project that's been going on at least 70 years. Uh, and we can't really say that the workers have any significant power since, you know, the 1940s. Yes, there was a civil rights movement, but, you know, the, the march, uh, Million Man March for, for jobs uh, didn't really give people jobs, did it? There was no government program after that. You know, you get the Civil Rights Act and you get a lot of these inclusions, but like there was no furthering of an economic progressive agenda. It was a way of social progressivism to supersede economic progressivism while um, global capitalism continued. So we need to be aware of that. Uh, there's structural racism in the U.S. Uh, it's not a joke. It's not something to to dismiss. It's not just... Um, a product of uh, uh, critical race theory. It is also very evident to anybody who looks at any of the facts. You know, the incarceration rates uh, between people of lighter skin versus people of darker skin. Black and brown people are disproportionately uh, subjected to prison. They're, the war on drugs disproportionately targets black and brown people. Um, you have the educational institutions and who they let in. You know, that's why you have these things like um, quotas and, and uh these these kind of demands for equality that are coming from the NAACP, NAACP. Um, but it, it it is a serious thing, and it does need to be addressed. You know, the historic black colleges uh, that are supposed to be funded now there seems to be like no question of what that's going to be in the reconciliation bill. Um, you know, the voter restriction, the voter ID laws; those are definitely targeted towards uh, poor black and brown people. You know, poor white people might get caught up in that, but the U.S. actually used to have 
free colleges until the 1960s. But suddenly when uh, you couldn't discriminate to people based on their color or their sex or their national origin or any of that with the Civil Rights Bill, all of a sudden our colleges became pay per play. So there is this economic discrimination that is perpetuating racial discrimination, institutional racism. Our institutions, our policies are racist. It's not necessarily individuals that matter. It's the institutions. So we have structural racism. So that we have structural problems. And they were, for some reason in 2016 and 2020 in the campaigns for Bernie Sanders, they would talk about these structural problems. They would talk about corruption. They would talk about all of these things like, like we need to fix the undemocratic institution of the Electoral College. We need to fix the filibuster. We need to fix the Senate being an undemocratic body. We need to make it a more democratic body. There's just... All of these things, it seems to have gone right by the wayside. As soon as he wasn't a contender in either of them, we seem to have lost any semblance of what we are actually fighting for. And yeah, it was more radical than the standard ticket. But that allowed the Overton window, that allowed the conversation to include these possibilities and discuss them. Even if it's to dismiss them, it was now discussed. And that is vital. That is important. And so when we stop having these structural critiques and we talk about reform or incrementalism, we incrementalism, we have to understand that we are compromising before we get anything. We should never go back on what we want. We should tell everybody and we should make it as clear as possible. If we are to ever win anything, which will always be a compromise, we need to be clear about what we want. Um, and then, of course, the climate crisis, you know, the, the plastic bag lobby kind of made it so that plastic is everywhere. It's not being recycled. China isn't getting it from us anymore. They don't want to deal with it. There's an island in California, in, in, Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean that's, you know, bigger than Connecticut or something. And it's all plastic. We need to stop that. Big oil and big coal. You know, if you don't think climate change is real, why is the past, you know, six years, the hottest years on record? You know, extreme climate conditions, you have flooding that's more often and earthquakes that are more often and hurricanes that are more often. This is the future. It is here. It is now. And we need to deal with it as fast and as aggressively as we possibly can. And I just don't see that. So these are the crises we're dealing with. Fracking, of course, is, is backed by both parties. Big oil and big coal owns the Republican Party. Um all manufacturing, of course, are huge polluters. Industrial manufacturing is a big, big deal. And we're not just talking about CO2. You're talking about nitrogen as well. But there are solutions for them. But if they are not pushed, the private industry will not do anything. And if they're not held accountable, they will not correct their course. And lastly, we have the um, the pandemic, right? Um well, not lastly, we also have you know global imperial warfare, the constant war, world war, a nuclear armament uh, where we're constantly invading other nations and we're trying to occupy them to some end that benefits us somehow. But, you know, men and women of America are, are just kind of more property, more fuel for these machines of war so that we can get more oil, we can get more resources from places like Iraq and um and uh, in Afghanistan, and we back other nations that do the same, you know, like Saudi Arabia in, in Yemen and, and in Syria. Like, we just don't stop having wars. And, and Iraq um, is a prime example. It, it, these forever wars are the norm. They are not the exception. 
And we need to recognize that and we need to get away from that. Trump was big on nuclear armament and we need to stop nuclear armament and the Space Force from nuking countries from space. That would be terrible. That's something that no other country in the world is doing and somehow we're doing it. Um, the pandemic programs, uh, the, the, the forced people on unemployment because they couldn't set up a program that was actually going to pay anybody uh, a, uh, a, a wage or, or give them any help during the pandemic. So you basically forced places to close with lockdowns and then you forced people on unemployment and you laid them off so they get aid from the states. And then, you know, there was three payments that were universal payments, cash payments that actually did really great. You know, one under Trump and, and, um, and oh, no, just two payments, sorry, about $2,000. $2,000 in total to Americans as a universal subsidy. Canada was getting monthly distributions. Many, like France was getting monthly distributions to supplement their, their, um, their wages that were now being cut because they couldn't work or to keep their name, their jobs or just to live on. It, it, it's a worldwide pandemic. We need to be in this together. And the U.S. wasn't. And we, we actually forced people to sacrifice their livelihood because the system wasn't set up to help people. And we need to think about that. The, the, um, the student loan deferment is coming to an end in September. The mortgage moratorium is coming to an end. We have like 3.5 million people that are going to be uh, kicked out of their homes that they own currently, they live in currently. Um, the the uh, rental moratorium just ended last week, and it doesn't seem that anybody wants to really fix that. They say that they want to fix it. They, they're passing the buck. It's the executive branch. It's Congress. It's the CDC. Um, you know, we can't. Excuses, excuses, excuses. Just bullshit. It's just bullshit. You are in power. You need to do it. I don't give a shit if you go to court. I don't care if somebody sues. I don't care if it ends up in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not the government of the United States of America. And we should not let them be making legislative decisions. If the Supreme Court strikes it down, then they can extend the moratorium to an X amount. And they say, OK, after that, that's it. Then Congress actually has to get their ass in gear and pass a law. That's their job. Let's stop giving them excuses. And if they don't do it, vote them all out. All of them. Brand new Congress. That's fine. It's our prerogative as voters. We do not need to vote for the same corrupt individuals that do nothing for us and actually cause us to get hurt. Um, and the additional unemployment payments that were guaranteed by the federal government are actually going to expire because, you know, some cheap businesses don't want to pay for, uh, more, for more employees. And they're having trouble hiring people because people don't want to work, uh, for low wages anymore. They don't want to live their lives in, in constant misery in a culture that only appreciates them for consuming and their consuming power. They've had a year to kind of reevaluate life and said, I want to spend time, more time with my families. I want to do something that's better for myself, better for the environment, better for my culture, better for my mentality. I don't want to work nights, all of these things. And that's important to recognize. And we should take this opportunity to reform our culture so that it is more fair, more equitable, so that it is more humane Instead of just having some people suffer for the benefit of everyone else, we have an opportunity to do better. So to recap, we talked about the, uh, the State of the Union. Uh, the crisis we're in is crisis of inequality, the uh, anti-unionization crisis, the structural racism crisis, the 
climate crisis, the pandemic programs, the pandemic uh, response crisis, the uh, the war imperialist crisis, and lastly, uh, and I don't want to forget this, the attack, the assaults on our freedoms. We have, of course, the attacks on voting, which is kind of perpetual for the GDP. And we are supposed to get some kind of protection from the the Democrats for once. But it seems that they're making excuses and that's followed by the wayside again. And why? Because the opposition. How often are we going to fall for this? There's attacks on education and they're calling it the culture war. But it's not the culture war. They're attacking education because they don't want people to know the truth. They are attacking the truth just like. You know, Donald Trump said fake news, fake news. But this isn't new. Everybody in the executive branch, every administration has said, you know, we're going to control the news. We're going to control what you hear. We're going to control what questions can be asked in our press conferences. That's not a free and fair society. There's an assault on on reporting. You know, there's a report, a result on Julian Assange. They're prosecuting Julian Assange for doing his job as a reporter. There's uh, a, 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 an assault on criticizing a foreign nation. That's an assault on free speech. It's a foreign nation. I could say whatever I want about any nation, even the U.S. That's free speech. But somehow there's all these BDS laws, like I can't use my purchasing power, I can't use my speech to say anything bad about Israel. That's absurd. And it's unconstitutional. Um, there's assaults on speech that now social media is actually curtailing. What can be said? What can't be said? Who can use, you know, platforms? These are platforms that are now, the government has said there are monopolies and they're going to act to pass these bills to break them up. But right now they are acting as the public square and we cannot change their position as the public square right now. So what, in five years we're going to be able to speak the truth on these platforms while they are favoring the lies of mainstream media? Are you kidding me? Mainstream media has their own agenda and they say their own things. And it is not the truth. And so we can't have public discourse and we can't have freedoms because some people don't like the freedoms? No, we have discourse and the truth is what ends up remaining because it's true. And the lies fall by the wayside and we know we call the lies, the, the liars out and we hold them accountable by not buying their product anymore by not reading their their swill anymore, by finding alternatives that are more valid. But to decrease that access to discourse, to honest discourse, is actually to decrease our freedoms and our ability to express ourselves, and also to decrease our ability to find the truth and support the truth where we find it. That's crucial. If you can't hear the truth, you can't support the truth, and you assume lies are true. That is awful and is not sustainable for any kind of free nation. So we need to be aware of these things. Part two, what perpetuates stagnation? Why do we have this, what we have? I'm sure there's many things, and I got a list here, but I, I think that um, I'm going to miss some. And I want you to know that I'm aware that I'm going to miss some, and that I hope that you can kind of fill in the blanks or um, reach out to me and tell me what I miss. Meaning what radio doc, uh, at gmail.com uh, if you want to send me an email. Also, you can send me a voice message uh, back on Anchor, and I will listen to it. Thank you. So, uh, what perpetuates stagnation? 
that there's myths that we're always improving that you know tomorrow is better than today and that we've gotten so much better with industrialization with this knowledge economy with the gig economy and i just feel like that is a total lie and we know that's a total lie because millennials and zoomers are already cursed and they are not going to do better than their parents and so there is no real way to turn that around we know from statistics that that's getting worse you know are people living longer sure but do the u.s uh, people in the u.s live longer than people in other first world nations the oecd uh oced nations um no no we don't we spend more on health care but we get less than anyone else Healthcare is a huge problem. Um, we're an exceptional country. Well, I'd like to see how we're exceptional. Uh, people say that we're an exceptional country, and we do have values, and we do have freedoms that I, I prize very closely to my heart. But I also think that there's some things that are structurally wrong with the U.S. Uh, for example, the dual sovereignty system. This is a system that is a remnant of the colonial uh, English powers, where you had the House of Lords be the individual landlord or, uh, landlords um, stand up and, and demand representation from the monarch. And then you had the House of Commons, which would be the representation of the people. And so now, instead of the, having the monarch, you have the executive branch. Instead of having the House of Lords, you have the Senate. And instead of having the House of Commons, you have the, uh, the House of Representatives. Now, it's not really that different. But the House of Lords and the governors and the states are not, they are supreme in their own oversight, right? Only the executive decision can really make decisions over them. And that's what the, the vice president does. But that doesn't make the U.S. exceptional. It's actually problematic. We needed a federal response to the pandemic and instead they kicked it to the states. That became a problem of distribution and funds and and administration and singular messaging. It became a 50-state response instead of a single response from the whole nation. That is bad, and we have had some of the worst outcomes in the world of avoidable deaths from pan the pandemic. So don't tell me that we're exceptional unless you're telling me we're exceptionally bad, because there's a case for both. But other nations did better in this particular example of pandemic response. But there's many other ways in which the U.S. is not an exception. We don't guarantee freedoms. And I've already talked about this. Freedoms are under attack in the U.S. When people were protesting over the summer, they were physically attacked. Reporters, the press, was physically attacked. And somehow we value freedoms. During the, the recent French elections, they sprayed horseshit from a, a giant um, tanker truck onto the house of Macron. And they didn't have the police break their heads open for that. So yet we're free. Tell me how we are better. Tell me how, you know, we, we are bad. Like, be honest with yourself. We need to get away from this idea that laws don't apply to the U.S. because we are exceptional. Other rules don't apply to us. We are part of the world and we are definitely applicable to all kinds of lies. And we're applicable to all kinds of laws. And we're, we also have things to be proud of. I'm not saying we don't. You can be proud of the U.S. You can be patriotic. Please, you know, care about it. I do. I think that the people, uh, part of what I love about the U.S. is that it, it does provide me with a certain amount of hope. 
But I think I'm not going to fool myself and say that it's, you know, just one side that, you know, laws don't apply to us. They do. And what we do affects others and others don't deserve to be hurt at the hands of the U.S. and neither do the citizens of the U.S. So uh, another issue that that um, perpetuates the stagnation in the U.S. Uh, is, is that um, inequality, the idea that inequality exists as a natural or supernatural order. This is ridiculous. The Enlightenment, the whole idea of equality and equal rights and, and voting uh, in a democracy was that we are all universally guaranteed a certain idea of who we are. And that comes with a certain amount of power and that comes with a certain amount of empowerment. And yeah, we've increased that since the beginning to include more people, but I don't see how that changes the spirit any. You know, the only people that would 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 be advocates of inequality would be the same people that are advocates of a ruling class or advocates of an elite class that tells others what to do. Other advocates of um, uh, of a, a of some kind of privilege standing, and I am absolutely against that. I I believe in democracy, which means everybody has equal rights under the law, and to say that there is some kind of natural order that provides inequality or supernatural order. If you're going to talk about the divine, the divine and try and invoke that kind of thing, there's no rationale to it. It is absolutely absurd and it has no place in the United States of America. We are a secular nation. And yeah, there's a lot of influence of Protestant philosophy. And I think that's something we should acknowledge and we should try and get away from to go to something better. Um, the, the idea of incrementalism is a terrible idea. We know from history that change doesn't happen in, in little little moves towards a better life. It's this, it goes to this, um, this whole uh, idea of ever improving. Uh, it's a lie. Incremental ideas, um, it's two steps forward, one, you know, it's, it's one step forward, two steps back. You just slide backwards if you only push for a little bit. And so this idea of, of, of limiting aid programs um, for any particular amount of time when you don't even know if it's responding to a crisis that may or may not be over by the time that's over, it's absurd. It's, it's offensive. And we should all be offended by incrementalism. If you're going to have something phase in and actually be radical when it's in, fine. But incrementalism is a lie and it is terrible um, and it is not a way to govern at all. And we know, like I said, from history, that change happens by big radical moves. Um, excuses. So a government will give you excuses. We had this with the, the pandemic programs where they're talking about the court said this and the CDC can't do that. And, and you know, the, the rent moratorium. It's all an excuse. They're in power. They can make the rules. They can deal with the consequences. The, the idea that they won't try because they think they might fail is absurd. It's like a pre-compromise. Why won't you try? You should be held accountable if you don't do something. If you make an excuse, you should be punished. It is your job to do it. Government can do things. Um, there's no accountability. There's no accountability to the media. There's no accountability to our public officials. So that leads me to believe that our public system of accountability, our public system of democracy doesn't work. If people keep getting reelected and those with the most money get reelected, then they do whatever they want when they are uh, in office and they will ruin this country. 
They will ruin our nation. They will ruin our lives because they have the power to do good. They have the power to do bad. And if they're not forced to do good, they're always going to do bad. It's just the way it is. There is more influence, and Brianna Joy Gray recently made this point. There's more influence for the corporate agenda, the anti-worker agenda, constantly putting pressure on politicians than there are the pro-worker agenda. It is. It's constant. And so the only way we can combat that is to have a constant pressure campaign of a more radical pro-worker agenda all of the time. All the time. Because the lobbyists don't sleep. You know, the, the monopolists don't sleep. The oligarchs don't sleep. And they're going to do everything they can to take this nation away from us. We need to fight for democracy. We need to be clear that we are going to put pressure and we are going to vote against and we are going to replace our representatives that we control. They are our representatives. We are their constituency. We will hold them accountable. And that just gets down to us being active. And I'll talk about that next. Um, the privatization is always a bad idea. I know people that are big capitalists, they're going to say privatization, 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 even in this infrastructure bill, privatization of the pandemic response, privatization of the, the reagents, the, the um, offshoring of, the, of essential uh, production and manufacturing, whether it's protective equipment or it's reagents for testing. Uh, all of this stuff was a huge mistake. And uh, privatization and, and global capitalism is been the march of every Democrat and to the most part, every Republican. Trump was a bit of an exception in, on his rhetoric, but um, it's always bad. Privatization is a bad thing. We should keep public works. We should expand public works. We should allow the public to be control, be in control of their future. If we have more public works, we have more, more democratic institutions and, and democratic uh, industry like co-ops and, and whatnot, we will have a stronger democracy and we will have a better, more resilient nation. And I, you don't have to take my word for it. Look at other nations of the world. The most instable are the ones that are private. In fact, when we went into Iraq and you took it over with warlords, what do they do? They privatize all the industry. And even if they're going to make it public, it's some kind of like... Um, Venezuela is, is situation with their you know socialism and they're trying to make public uh, everything public. It is in opposition to global interests, but at, at the same time, it is a bad decision because it's still in the hands of a select few. If they serve the people, it becomes a different situation. But the, I, I'll get into that in the next one as well. Um, so privatization is always bad. There is a strong distrust in institutions, a distrust in government, a hate in government that has been around since Reagan and has stayed with us. And it's wrong. Government, and Richard Wolff said this recently, government is just, the state is just a reflection of what the people want. We need to make sure the people's will is expressed in government. It can be a force for good. It can be a force for evil. But it is not inherently bad or good. And we need to understand that because if you just think it's inherently bad and you don't want and you distrust it, they, the government will use its machinations, its institutions against you. We need to make sure we express ourselves and we express our values and we get that reflected in government and in our representatives. Period. And to say that it's generally bad is actually advocating for privatization, advocating for oligarchy. And there's a lot of libertarians out there that will say, Government is inherently bad. 
how could it be inherently bad? It's providing hospitals to you. It's enforcing the law with a monopoly on force with police and FBI. And yeah, are we too forceful? Perhaps, but that's another discussion. Um, We are protecting our borders. We are protecting our nation. We are waging war. All of these things are things that only a government can do and only a government should do. And to think that like, you know, a, a, uh, an idea of where the private corporations are the ones doing them, like going to space. It's not the purview of private industry to be in space, period. You know, Richard Branson and, and um, Jeff Bezos going up into suborbital space, you know, halfway to the moon or whatever. It's offensive. We did more than that collectively as a nation 70 years ago. Why are, you know, 60 years ago? Why are we settling for less in the future? We're settling for less, for individuals to privatize a a kind of communal effort. It's absurd. Government is powerless. Don't ever let them tell you they're powerless. They are elected officials that are in the most influential positions in the country. They are not powerless. Joe Biden can do plenty. He's going to make excuses. He's going to say he's powerless. I give no shits what his troubles are. Do the job. And monopolization. Monopolization is always bad. You're not going to get anything good from monopolization. You want um, a free and fair uh, nation. You need competition. You need innovation. You need to have uh, to have private industry never rival the government. That is what you're talking about with monopolization. You are basically having many governments inside your government that operate by their own rules. It's not acceptable. And we, can, we should never let it happen. Hope. Part three, hope. How can we, the people, obtain our goals? How can we change things? Well, first, we need to answer the question, what is political engagement? There's the lie of political engagement that supporting campaigns every four years, every two years, as if any kind of political power will change the world. And we made it happen because we were supporting that campaign. We got out the vote. We organized. It's not a bad thing to do, and it's definitely important, but it's not ever going to be political engagement and it's not never going to be sufficient for change the truth is is that political engagement is a constant and perpetual socialization activity and study and we need to think about political engagement as a way of life instead of something you do every four to two years you can't just say i went to one meeting and i voted so i'm i'm politically engaged It's just more than that. And it's not Twitter and it's not Facebook and it's not even listening to this podcast, though I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, It's more than that. And I'm going to tell you about it. So gaining political power, right? This is the political game. Okay. This is what we try to do with Bernie. This is what we're trying to do with many other progressives. Um, and where there's always going to be opposition, and we need to understand what that opposition is, but it has to be ground up. We tried to kind of jump into the 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 
the final leg of the race with the Bernie Sanders presidency. But now seeing him in, in a position of power, I don't know if we would have gotten what we wanted, even if he did get into office, which he didn't. And he didn't in 2016, he didn't in 2020. But one of the great shames I have is that there was this great unification, this great singular goal that we all had, and it was millions of people strong, and, and we donated our money, and we put our efforts into it, we organized, and we, we got out the vote, and it seemed to go nowhere. And even now, we have um, our revolution rebranding itself as progressive, uh, no, pragmatic progressives. I don't think we need pragmatists. We need Machiavelli. We need people to seize power. And then we need to hold them to account, and we need to make sure that they stay true to what they said they were going to do. Bernie always had this idea of an inside-outside game. As an inside, he would do the politics. He would he would do everything he could. He would twist arms. He would do what he had to do. And then outside, there would be political support and activists knocking on the door, pushing the agenda from the outside, and that he would support both of them from the presidency, from the Oval Office. And that's not a bad idea, and it's definitely a way to exert pressure. He said he'd also go campaign against the... the um, the people that are against him. And it's also not bad, but it can't be everything, right? Political power really needs to come from the ground up, local, state, and then the federal. Because when you go in, you go in with allies. You go in with people that share your values. You come in with a support system. Um, you can stay clear to your message. You can stay honest to what your constituencies want. And you can stay unified with your pressure. So the outside, but the outside pressure, their significance of outside pressure is their ability to show up when called, their ability to vote in a block so you have a political constituency that matters, and their ability to, um, to protest and strike. You know, if you go on strike and you withhold your labor, then you have private industry saying that, you know, the, that the public body needs to do what the public wants. That's important. You want as many allies as you can, and you want to twist as many arms as you can from whatever power you have. And that's the outside game. But the other essential part, not just political power, obtaining, gaining political power, obtaining political power, but the other essential part is community engagement, community networks. And that's building a culture of political involvement. It's supporting uh, other organizations, supporting each other as we go through this journey of political engagement, this political involvement. It, it, it defines our collective values and allows us easier to support. And this is in person, unfortunately. This is within organizations. This is in meetings. And it stays it stays, and that's how political identity should be formed. Is not something that is you just click off uh, one box every four years. It should be about being aware of the elections that are coming up, being aware of where um, candidates stand, and essentially knowing yourselves, you know, define your values collectively, but also you, you draft reforms, draft laws, draft manifestos, try to really nail down what you think you believe in. 
and see what's out there. And you can have disagreements, have those discussions, use your free speech, know where you stand. And in order to know yourself, you have to be educate others. You have to educate yourself. You have to learn theory so that you understand what you're doing, what the goal is, and you actually feel empowered. Good theory makes you feel empowered. Um, that's something I learned from Left Reckoning. So good theory makes you feel empowered. And talk, talk to people, have discourse, get to the core of whatever you're trying to do as a mutual struggle. What is the purpose? Learn what the truth is, the actual truth, not, not, you know, not just for you, not just for what you've heard, get to the bottom of what the truth is and find those sources that you can trust. It, uh, uh, an authority is important to know, but getting to authoritative sources, getting to the actual discourse to understand what truth is, is important to be politically involved and engaged and study history. So you know what the context is. So we can know that, you know, worker struggle, um, the pro-worker movement ended in the 1940s. Ended. As soon as the war ended, the, the pro-corporate movement really they sweeped in and just got rid of unions, got rid of the socialists, you know, and a lot of that was through the Red Scare. So understand your history so that you can say, these are my enemies. You say that this is how they attack us. And, and honestly, the Democratic and the Republican playbook doesn't change that much. We look at the election today that in, in Ohio, the establishment neoconservatives and the establishment uh, neoliberals and the establishment of both parties are supporting one person with their corporate interests that are supporting one person with the Israel lobby that's supporting one person with, you know, the um, the Lincoln Project and Bill Crystal supporting one person. And it's very easy to say who my enemies are because I don't like any of those people. And if they're all unified in a Democratic primary against somebody who's supported by the constituency, against somebody who's supported by progressives, economic progressives like Bernie Sanders or thought leaders like uh, Cornel West or uh, Killer Mike, then all the better. I know exactly where I stand. And even if it's just about policies like Medicare for all, it's just a human necessity. And the fact that the U.S. doesn't have it is a shame. It is a national shame. It is a mark on our character as a nation. But there's even more things than that. And so Nina Turner's, who I unequivocally support, but people that would have to think about Nina Turner or Chantel Brown, I don't look down on them. You, you should look and see who expresses your values. I'm never going to discredit somebody's vote or say that they're wrong for expressing their values. But I'm going to try to do my best to educate people and to keep myself educated. To make the best choice that's for them. To make the best choice that's for me. So these political organizations, political involvement... Um, this community engagement needs to expand. It needs to grow. You need to do good. You need to act collectively. You need to know your enemy and how they act to divide and weaken your movement and your, your collective identity. And I think that's what it comes down to is that there, there is this core understanding of yourself in political engagement that we've lost. People identify with the Democratic or Republican Party, but depriving people of more than these two parties is actually 
terrible because it limits who they can be. And I think this is why in my program, at least in my point of view, I try to be open to some Republican arguments, uh, arguments uh, to some Republican ideas. They believe in freedom and they believe in hope and, and patriotism. These are great things, you know, and I also believe in those things. You know, they believe in a, a, a domestic production. I am not traditionally on that side, but I don't disagree on everything. I am not their mortal enemies. If anything, I'm more of an enemy of the establishment than I am an enemy of any any Republican um, or any voter in general. I don't see the voters as being emblematic of what the politicians do. You know, and it, it's important for me to, to make that distinction is that the voters aren't wrong. They know what they want. And the popular thing is what's not getting done. And why is the popular thing not getting done? Well, because politicians don't have a financial interest to get it done. And if you investigate it, they are corrupt. And whether it's soft corruption, whether it's legal corruption, it, it's corruption. And they take money indefinitely and they profit, you know, off of their stock trades and nothing happens. There's no accountability. So we need to change that. And we need to be politically engaged to do so. All right. Just in summary, we had uh, three subjects we covered today. Our problems, they're real and they're serious, especially nuclear threats and climate change. And these are kind of the guns to our head and we need to act to, to really turn things around. I don't want any devastating tragedies to happen anymore. We need to say no. Nuclear weapons are not a deterrent. They are a scourge on humanity. All war, in a way, is a scourge on humanity, and it's a shameful act, and we need to find a way to get away from it. And we also need to do something about climate change as soon as possible. As soon as possible, we need to do something radical and dramatic, and we need to make it happen. Even if it's investing in nuclear, and I know that's not a sustainable thing, and it's not the greenest thing, but it's got to be better than all of this wastes. Uh, it's something that the UK has 10 power plants for their small island. There's got to be a way. Right now, it's we're in a position where it's just too big to naturally go away. We're going to have to have technology to turn back the clock. So right now, we are on borrowed time. It's like... It's like you're sick, and then you can't just sleep it off or and be under monitoring. They need you on a ventilator. So the world is on a ventilator. We need machines to get back to normal. And so far, those machines don't exist. So climate change is that kind of real. So these problems are serious. Two, the status quo. The status quo will not adequately deal with the issues at hand. The status quo is a failure and cannot offer the kind of answers we need. And reforming it is not an answer. Just having one program change is not an answer. Just having incremental change is not an answer. It will not work. We need dramatic change, systemic change, structural change, and it needs to happen soon. Um, 
and there's uh, every new year we we are less where we, we do less we get less the government does less and the American people suffer we suffer more look at the people striking at Frito-Lay working seven hours a day you know working 80 hour weeks in seven days a week for months on end this one guy gets electrocuted and he's expected to go to work the very next day we should collectively say not in America not in my country somehow some people shrug their shoulders and think this is okay this turns my stomach status quo can't fix the problems and lastly peaceful change comes from political office political action and communal commitments cannot work or be sustained otherwise and there's historic examples for this we can't just have the top change and then and then expect that the culture is going to change and that people are going to be okay with it we need the the people to be engaged and change their communities and work and change their their uh, elected officials from the local level you know from the dog catcher all the way up to the president we need all of it and we need to be united uh, Manny Ness from Brooklyn uh, Brooklyn College part of the CUNY um, says What's missing right now? We need organization, commitment, principled analysis, and a program for social change. So I hit some of those notes, but I thought maybe it'd be interesting to re um, to reiterate. There is hope, and it's not easy, but it's not all contingent on one politician running for office. It's contingent on what you and people like you are willing to do. Thank you for listening to me. Um, please uh, give me a comment or like, share it with somebody that you know, um, even if it's just a part. And uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks again. <laughs>